Shrinkwrap Radio number 874, Jungian therapist Stephen Rowley on his memoir of Adoption and Destiny. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrinkwrap Shrinkwrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Stephen Rowley, PhD, a depth psychotherapist practicing on Bainbridge Island, Washington. We'll be discussing his new book, The Lost Coin, a memoir of adoption and destiny. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Steve Rowley, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Delighted to be here, Dr. Dave. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Yeah, I, I, you, you let me know that, and uh, that really warmed my heart to know that, and also... Uh, you let me know that you'd been a long-time listener and that yes, that you felt like it was really important to to uh, be interviewed by Shrinkwrap Radio. So. Right. Well, we've had people who I've had contact with, teachers and others who've had enormous influence on me and also my book. Uh, I know you've interviewed Tom Elsner quite a few times, Monica Wickman, uh, Don Kalshed, James Hollis. I mean, they've all, all hosted one of the... Uh, endorsements for the book. So anyway, uh, I mean, I feel like I'm honored to be and flattered to be in such company. Yeah, yeah, well, that's great. And um, so we're going to be discussing your book, The Lost Coin, a memoir of adoption and destiny. And uh, I found it a very consuming book. I felt, uh, you know, sometimes uh, reading is difficult for me these days. And uh, so sometimes I, I have to uh, kind of radically skim but uh your story your story really pulled me in and oh, good. thank you and and elements of it were close enough to my own story that i really felt like okay i've got i've got to keep going i've got to keep going here <laughs> and fortunately i was able to do that um now the subtitle is uh, uh about the lost coin and and I, I kept wondering about that throughout the book, and it was the big reveal came at the end of the book, and right. and uh, so uh, let's start there. Let's start with that big reveal. What does the lost yeah. coin refer to? Yeah. yeah, let's start at the end. Well, the lost coin, in terms of the writing process, and maybe through the just the story of my own life, uh, is that uh, the the uh, not the conclusion, but some sort of summary judgments, if you will, about life and meaning and uh, who am I? Uh, when I was about three weeks uh, before finishing the book, I had to stop and pause and say, how am I going to finish this? And I had happened to have that Zen koan uh, on my computer and realized it was a perfect metaphor uh, for what I wanted to say, which was that even though uh, life has taken me many journeys and some of them which had wrapped up nicely in certain ways, the idea of personal identity, the who am I question, remained elusive. And rather than try to put it in a box or come up with a resolution that a Zen koan by its nature, and this one specifically, invites the idea of mystery, of, of non-conclusion. Uh, those last couple words, I think, if, I, if you don't mind, I think I'm right here in front of me, um, that we, uh, um, hold on one second. Sometimes I think that after all these years, I've found myself, but other times I think I'm less sure. I do know one thing, though. I've always been a lucky boy, but I still don't know why. I'm more content that way, not knowing. What would life be anyway without its mysteries slipping through our fingers like coins in a river, lost and found again and again? 
And it's that note of that note of mystery yeah. uh, that where I was more content uh, holding the mystery. I think it's Campbell that said life's not a, a puzzle to be solved, a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. And I yeah. think yeah, now that I've quote. written the book and yeah. I've, I'm living with that mystery, it, it seems to resonate with me. And I think as I brought even people who don't know what a Zen koan is, I think people have been brought in by that particular point and feel some sort of a what resonance or almost an inner peace, I think, with that yeah. sense of not, not quite knowing. Yeah, the koan, as I recall, I had not heard it before, but as I recall, something like, uh, if you want to find the lost coin, uh, look in the river where you lost it. Right. You can you can say you're going to look for it where you lost it, but but it's not quite looking for your keys where the last place you left them, because when we look for them, we look for an object in water. We have we it's either muddy water we can't find it at all, or it's refraction. It's not quite where we think it is. So that kind of uh, that haunting, who am I, or at some point in the book, what am I am I about, uh, seems to be. Uh, 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 both of t- t- the allurement, I think, for pursuing on with life with that dri- driven by that mystery and by that question. You know, when I was in graduate school, uh, I <clears throat> I was going through a period of, of depression. And uh, so I finally decided to go to the uh, student counseling center. And I saw a young psychiatrist, only saw him a couple of times. But uh, he really nailed it for me. He he said. Uh, he said, "You don't know who you are," and uh, that for me was like a Zen koan that I, yeah. you know, that has stuck with me all these years, and uh, and I'm in the same place that you are. I, there are certain ways in which I, oh yeah, okay, I, I figured out who I am, and yeah. there are other ways in which it's it's. You know, it's still a mystery, and it's there's still something compelling about it. Um, so, why this book now? Why did you write it? Well, I think early in the book, I believe I think I can't remember which part of the book it is now. Uh, I cite Carl Jung talking about writing his memories, dreams, and reflections, or having someone he dictated to begin to put it together at his eighty third year, almost the same year age you are, and yeah. uh, only at that time could he have the perspective to look back and tell what he calls his own personal myth, which is different than an autobiography. It's maybe even different than a memoir, but it was to trace the internal journey that he had all these years. And so somehow I had to do, I think, the complete journey of setting out to find my birth mother first after 40 years, when I was 40. And then by chance, the identity of my birth father coming to me only uh, two years ago. Somehow those were the markers, always the harbingers, the clarion call that it was now it was time to write. And so recounting that journey in a very selective way, which is part of what memoir is about, to both track the outside life of the detective story, if you will, of how what all the obstacles and other things that weren't related to adoption that were also challenges in life, but also to then begin to explore the interior life and, and the, both the unconscious and kind of that other soul's journey on the on the inner level. And to me, that is the what distinguished kind of the point in t- sharing with the broader audience is that. Uh, we adoptees have very different lives on the outside. Our stories are all over the map. But the inside part, that inner journey, which I've explored in the memoir, makes us much more similar. That that primal wound of separation of mother and child at a tender, uh, critical developmental period is the stuff that actually makes us much more in common. So that was my, that dive into that interior world and pulling in, a few, without being uh, too didactic, bringing in a couple references from people like Hillman and, and Don Callshed to illuminate kind of what that interior uh, uh, life is, is says about who we are. And not only as a group of just uh, adoptees, but I think probably a group of anybody who who's suffered any kind of trauma in, in early years. Yeah. So in part, did you write the book in part for ad- other adoptees? I wrote it primarily and uh, primarily for the adoption community. But then, as I got, as I began to write further and, and talked about being, you know, a boomer and growing up in the fifties and sixties and being in college, radical days in University of Wisconsin, uh, having a career in in, uh, in education, which ended up in a gigantic car crash uh, for my career in Silicon Valley in two thousand six. Those things speak to audiences that are far past the adoption world. So, uh, 
anybody who's been in education would would appreciate kind of that journey and uh, basically anybody yeah who grew up with the Beatles in, in 1964 uh, as as having lived through those seminal uh, periods of life the Cuban Missile Crisis the Kennedy assassination the Beatles but Martin Luther King uh, assassination Malcolm X and so forth we lived through all of that it was a flurry as you know you may we're slightly different ages but it was a what hell of a time to live through yeah and yeah. that I think is a marker for our generation I think that hopefully I've done a, a decent job and yeah, you did do, recounting that. You did do a good job because uh, I certainly recognized all those t- touch points, having lived through them yeah. as you did. The other thing I, I know you listen to a bunch of of, uh, <clears throat> of these podcasts that I've done, but uh, and and there have been a few where I've been interviewed and uh, talked about my own early beginnings. So, uh, and I don't want to go into great depth about that here, but. Uh, I grew up not knowing who my, initially not knowing who my biological father was, and I had mm-hmm. a black a black stepfather, and so there was this very obvious physical difference. And you talk about yeah. how how as you grew up, you began to realize that you didn't look like the siblings in the family that had adopted you. Right. So, um, <clears throat> by saying that, you also you raised the issue. Of- of cultural identity, which is another sort of robust sort of parallel to the things I've written about. Uh, Angela Tucker, who lives here in Seattle, wrote uh, uh, "You Should Be Grateful" about growing up black with a white uh, white household. Uh, just recently, the news of Buffy St. Marie being challenged, her cultural identity being challenged because she is Native Canadian. I forget which tribe it is, but being raised by white parents and somehow being accused of not being Native, which is, if you've ever seen her, is pretty much of a joke. But those things, those things are really important in terms of how we begin to say who we are, what tribe we belong to, what cultural, racial identity we, we either grow up with or choose, you know, sometimes in, in, in a 90-degree in a angle from the, the world in which we were brought up. So the, that's why this, as I say these, these yeah. issues are really complex. Yes, they are. And, uh, and what you're saying it reminds me of the issue that's kind of going on right now is that People who are uh, who are who are black have African American ancestry. Some of them suffer from not being black enough, either right. either either skin color or either culturally also. And, it's, you know, it's yeah. And, and I think people, anybody who's, people really struggle with that. Yeah, anybody who's seen Louis Gates's show Finding Finding Roots would would really appreciate that because if you go back. Just a generation or two, you find all kinds of things back there you had no idea about. One of them being Larry David, for example, who's a Jewish and a terrific comedian. Turned out they had a Confederacy slave-owning grandfather, great-grandfather. I mean, those are the surprises that lurk just not too far up the, you know, back up in the family tree from where we are. And it, it changes radically, that idea. I think by, by is my argument is it changes by making it much more complex. Yeah, I love that show, and uh, I think I've mentioned it on on this show. <clears throat> I really urge people to find it on PBS. It's a wonderful mm-hmm. series, and it is. Uh, and uh, and he does such a great job of uh, as an academic bridging into the the, the lived lives of various people and uh, yeah. and affirming them. Um, He's, he's lucky to have such a robust team of investigators, things that mere, mere mortals would never have access to. But right. you go back and obscure, you know, rural libraries in, you know, in, in Cuba, as an example, from 200 years ago. I mean, you've got pretty powerful means of investigation. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing to discover uh, how good the records were in some yeah. places going way, way back, you know? And, 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 that's, and, yeah, that's and by contrast, like in my book, you also see back when I started search for my birth mother in the pre-internet days, how primitive and difficult it is for many yeah. people. Even today, I mean, I've been contacted by people, just how do I, you know, my, my, my birth mother was adopted. She's no longer alive. I want to get a hold of her birth certificate. How do I do that? It's really still very hard in some places to get a hold of those, uh, just fundamental early records. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get into the uh, the adoption a bit here. 
you were adopted by an affluent family, um, and so you didn't find out the details of that until you were about how old? Well, I began to get trickles of that information about my identity, my uh, my birth mother and birth father, probably when I was in my oh mid to late 20s, and then about another 10 years after that, I was eventually able to put two and two together. I got a really critical piece of information from the, that current director at that time of the adoption agency, who is still alive and we've become good friends, just enough to, to go back to her hometown in Iowa, uh, just enough to go to the library with a name, find a picture in a, in a class yearbook. And then from that, I sent out uh, short letters to people in that county with the same last name, wondering if they knew who she was or where she was. And then it took uh, a month or two before a, sh- a little short note came my way saying that this person was located back in back in the East Coast. And then I then I was on my way. That's when that's when it really that's when it felt. I think the word I used in the book that's when the hunt was on. Then I had somebody to write to. Yeah, you, you skipped us way ahead in the story. I was thinking right. further further back. You describe oh. how how your parents were, and I think your mother in particular uh, was very, uh, you know, let you know early on that you were special because you were chosen. Other other kids weren't chosen in the way that you were chosen, but they right. they chose you because they really wanted you and and they wanted you to be in in their family. And they had they hadn't had any other children at that point. Right. And right. Uh, <clears throat> so so that's that was reassuring, I think, at the, at that stage of your life. And yet there right. was this this gnawing seed inside as you got older well how is it that i look different and what wh- wh- where does that come from and you know what kind of people uh, uh, would give me up how could they give me was i undesirable in some way that they right. that they they got rid of me and uh, so that was a haunting uh, fear and concern and then you tell of a critical incident in which your mother kind of blew up at you, uh, in your in your teens, I think, and it was yes. like, oh, will you stop nagging me about that? You know, yeah. that's uh, just give it up. You know, uh, uh, we told you we love you. Damn it! Uh, <laughs> right, right. And so that, and unfortunately, I wasn't sure why you put this this in there, but at the time she was handling a gun, and. Uh, uh, fortunately, I don't think she pointed it at at no, or anything. No. <clears throat> no, she didn't handle a gun, but there was one of the. There was a, my dad being a surgeon. We had there were a lot of, you know, he brought home a lot of samples of pharmaceuticals and so forth. They they kept that uh, in a in a cabinet, uh, an unlocked cabinet in our kitchen, and there was a there was a, a pistol up above. But no, she didn't have that. She didn't wave that in my face when she said that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and so, you mentioned your dad was a, sur- a surgeon. I don't know if I if I said that that this was an affluent family that you were adopted into. Well, by, uh, by, by, by Midwestern standards, I, it wasn't. You know, uh, you know, I mean, we weren't that rich. It was just we we did better than others just by virtue of his. You know, I, I, who knows how much money they made? We well, the house, of course, you know how price of homes back then. We had a. Uh, the house in 1958 they bought for thirty three thousand dollars, and of course that was a, that was an expensive home back in, yeah. in those days. Yeah, so it was right. across the street from a country club, but we we were also never let, uh, raised to feel privileged or to look much different. They came from very uh, humble, uh, both farm and small town roots, and that never really left the way we were we were raised. So, yeah. Um. <clears throat> And and to, you did very well in school. You you did. Uh, you were very popular. You were really liked by uh, by your peers. Going through high school and all was uh, sounded like it was a great time for you. You were a, a football hero, <laughs> and you you fully uh, reveled in that and enjoyed the benefits of it. You had lots of girlfriends, and. Uh, uh, so really, you you were kind of a jock, I think, uh, and half jock, half academic. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one one would not have predicted that you would somebody who would later, you know, 
uh, be so drawn to the inner life uh, because you were so fully right. engaged, you right. know, as a, as a young person. And you uh, you tell some stories in there that <laughs> I've got some stories that I've not told, I've not put out in public, and I I marvel. <laughs> <laughs> I marvel at some of the the confessions in the book. For example, <laughs> your uh, your well your confession at one point where you were you had purchased you and your buddies had purchased a thousand pounds of yes that's mar- right of, of marijuana yep. which you were which you were looking forward to selling at a, at a wonderful markup and <laughs> and uh, and you. You I, actually, you almost. I think you went into. You didn't get caught by the cops, but you had to. You ran out of gas or something. You went into a diner, and yep. there were a whole bunch of cops inside. They're all sitting there in the middle of a blizzard. <laughs> yeah, and you. That was just too close. You realized, well, this is way too risky. So you guys did end up selling it for. Uh, I don't think you made a lot of money on it. No, not really. And and. Uh, uh, so I was struck that you put that story in there. And then later at the University of Wisconsin, uh, where you also went to school, uh, <clears throat> you uh, there was a there was a during the, the 60s when uh, there was so much protest and all. Yeah. Um, I remember that period well. I was at the University of Michigan, which in some right. ways is a sister school to to the University of Wisconsin. Very similar, yeah. Very similar in terms of the uh, politics and uh, during that period and, and the activism. And um, so somebody set off a bomb, and it turns out they were friends of yours, and and you knew the you knew the kids who were the bombers. I knew one pretty well. The other two of them, the brothers, the Armstrong brothers, I did not know, although they were well known. And the other one, Leo Bird, who even recently in the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, is still listed as at large and has not been caught. Uh, no one really knows whether he's still alive, but I'm going to guess that he is. But yeah, he's been on the lam all these years. Uh, David Fine, who is uh, uh, who was on the lam for some time, spent a few years in prison, but he's He's a, a living. He lives and uh, works in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, got his life back, but uh, yeah, that was. But those were all shock. That was shocking because they, at least as I say, two of them were. Leo Burt was a. He was a. He was a sports writer. He was on the crew. He seemed the most unlikely person of the bunch. And David Fine at the time was only seventeen. So the other two brothers were townies. They, their dad worked out at the Oscar Mayer plant. These were not, you know, New York sophisticated. You know. Uh, weathermen, they were, they were, but they got in really deep, and it was shocking because not only the death, but the amount of destruction was incredible. But that particular event, and it really ended, I think, across the college world, a- ended radical protests. Things quieted down really quickly after that, uh, and uh, but it was quite a time to live through. With uh, as you probably did, we had you know tanks on campus, National Guard with bayonets, lots of CS gas. Those it, it was a wild, wild time. Yeah, you were you were uh, you were pretty much a radical, or at least on the fringes of yeah. uh, uh, of, of, of radical activism. And uh, I had an experience at at the University of Michigan, where there was a march uh, for the welfare mothers, a protest that the welfare mothers were getting cut off or something, and. So some friend suggest, and I was not one for marches, but some somehow I was cajoled by a friend to join that march, and uh, I was shocked that by deciding to join that march, I was no by the townspeople I was seen as a communist, as mm-hmm. the enemy. There were guys with rifles on the roofs trained on yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that is a sobering experience, boy. You to realize how fragile your your political identity is and your citizenship right. is if right. you make a misstep. Right. Yeah. So uh, I could really well those I, tactics, that, as I say in the book. I mean, you're, we were pushed to. You had to decide literally which side of the line you were going to be on. It wasn't it was difficult, if not impossible. 
even socially, let alone politically, to kind of try to straddle or both sides or to avoid taking a side. And those yeah. those uh, those tactics go back to Saul Alinsky and the labor organization in Chicago and so forth. So I, I said the fact that at some point when I really wanted to go into a class, but the picket line was there. And I, I, you know, I ultimately had to side with staying on the, you know, outside the class because I couldn't align myself with the school administration or the war or whatever. I mean, those were the kind of, they may be arbitrary, but those times they seem quite, like quite clear, a clear cut, you know, either you do or you don't kind of choice. Yeah, and you had a, a kind of a rebellious streak um, where you did not easily buckle into authority and kind of resisted that was the impression that I got. I, and, I still do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a thread <laughs> through through the account. And I I have a very good friend uh, who I'm still in touch with for, for all these years. He he had to drop out of uh, our first freshman year, and because um, <clears throat> he had to marry the girl that he got pregnant, but we stayed in contact with each other even to this very day by phone and uh, so he he ended up in a in a uh, in a uh, physiological psychology program graduate program at the, uh, the University of Pennsylvania and uh, where there some really big wigs and he was a star student but um, he went in for his third year exams or something like that, and he 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 refused to toe the party line. It just became right. obvious, and he dropped out. And he regrets that experience to to this day. Yeah. You know that that he kind of blew this huge yeah. career that he would have had. That was there was it was a guaranteed roadmap for him. Um, in, in my own case, I, I have to yeah. I have to believe, or I choose to believe the. Uh, that that anti that rebelliousness that restlessness that not lying to be liking rules or being confined in bureaucracies i have to think goes back to those early days from the day i was 10 days old until my parents adopted me six months later i was in i was in institutional care and i think there's some there's something viscerally inside me uh -huh. uh, that, that makes me say that that being handled you know even it may have been loving and, and uh, caring handling nevertheless being handled uh, as a commodity and having all the other rules and prescriptions and, and pro procedural things going on around me, I mean, uh, not consciously, certainly as an infant, it's just some, something tells me that that is in part why. Yeah. Uh, so now I just got through listening to the, or reading uh, or listening to the audible of Charlie Chaplin's life. And he was, although he was not adopted, but he was definitely one an orphan. He was he, the, the, the inner tramp that he held. And he was that, Way to his dying day, he was a complete at odds with every, with both the country and his own movie making world. And I, I just saw so much of Chaplin's life as as almost a poster boy for that kind of restlessness. Sure. Or uh, yeah. Dylan's uh, "Like a Rolling Stone." There's that could be our theme song for the adoption world. Yeah. Well, at one point, um, well, I should mention that there was this uh, Mr. G in high school, yes. a teacher who was very influential on your subsequent life that really got you interested in, in to considering becoming a teacher yourself. And right. at one, one point, and I forget which institution you were at when this happened, but uh, you had a chance to do some student teaching as a kind of internship, and they wanted you to cut your hair. And right. you, know, you had, had hippie hair at that point. And... Uh, Where's the, where's our hippie hair gone yeah. to anyway? <laughs> I already cut it once. I wasn't going to cut it again. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so uh, so you 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 dropped out. You did not. You didn't do that. But then later on, you really are on this uh, track. You're this career track in your life at very at a number of different schools, where you are definitely preparing to. To, uh, to enter education somehow. And uh, you were influenced by Summerhill also. I, I read that yeah. book at the time, yeah. and uh, it influenced me too, but did not make me want to become a teacher. <laughs> or, if, or if it did, I don't remember that part of it. But 
you know, but it seemed like just a wonderful idealistic, oh, why isn't, you know, why isn't the world like this uh, everywhere? Right. And Well, you know, those roots go back for many of us who go back, at least in this country, to John Dewey and, and, and Britain, the uh, British primary movement and the ways in which those were exported to the United States in the 50s. I mean, I'm, my Stanford influence, I had Dave Tyack as one of the people I did, who was the great American historian of education. So I appreciate the ways in which that progressiveness morphed and changed in this country, but it led me, and it coupled with my interest in schools, into the alternative school movement. I helped start one in Seattle, and later some of the, the different models that were coming out uh, just kept pushing me to uh, say something's got to be different. We have to break the mold of, of institutional thinking. It's, it's probably even more true today than ever. Uh, you can see how. Oh, um, oh yeah, yeah, and and so you you actually you gravitated to finally towards uh, um, school administration. You just I think you decided okay if I'm going to have a, a, any kind of real impact here, I got to get sure. in at the top and where I can really exert some influence. And interestingly, although you started some quotes hippie type schools or alternative schools. You actually uh, felt like the, it was important for – you had some standards and felt that right. it wasn't enough just to feel good. You had to – No, absolutely you, not. You, no. You, had, you had to study and you had to learn some stuff and demonstrate that. Right. So, so that, it took me a while to learn that as I tried to be a liberal – liberal professor, and I realized, wait a second, <laughs> we got to have a signed reading here, we're going to have some exams, I don't care if it is old-fashioned. Well, um, it's, one of those, it's one of those difficult things for sort of those kind of, in your terminology, kind of hippie parents with their hippie kids, to say that the kind of freedom that you're looking for, the so-called freedom you're trying to uh, uh, learn, grasp, grasp in light of the, uh, uh, the rules of, of bureaucratic schooling, require uh, a different kind of structure and different kind of discipline. They do require a structure, but it's a different kind. And so some of creating those schools was as much of bringing parents along as it is, it is kids. Once you have some of these structures in place or have a, for example, not a feel-good curriculum, but a fairly organized and, and robust kind of curriculum involving across the span of the curriculum, including the arts and, and uh, drama and, uh, and uh, dance and so forth, that that's where you begin to see uh, where creativity begins to flourish. That's where you find your find your freedom, so to speak. It's not without limits. It's within certain disciplines and, and structures right. you create. That's where we learn how to, you know, it's just like learning to write. I mean, it's certain, you, if you just want to write, write, you know, pretend you can be Jack Kerouac again and or Neil Cassidy and just write on a piece of uh, toilet paper and think that's going to be great literature, <laughs> only one person got to do that. Most of us can't do that. We have to learn those those rules, uh, those structures that by which we not only learn to write well, but also connect to an audience, so, which is something writing a book has certainly taught me. Yeah, and all of that, and you had a lot of a lot of training in writing. Actually, you, some of your teachers yeah. really they yeah. recognized that you had talent in that arena, and they uh, demanded excellence from you and, and and you got plenty of papers back with lots of red marks on them right and uh so 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 you did learn and uh and so i want to emphasize to our listeners that you've written a really good engaging book here that's oh, that's that's very readable because of everything that you learned about writing and all the, the success that you had as a writer. Now, your PhD eventually came from Stanford. This is after being at the University yeah. of Washington. You, you yeah. were at so, so many different places. but uh, And you at, at University of Washington, you majored in English, which only serves to further uh, cement your, your, your writing skills and ability. And, and and worldly knowledge <laughs> uh, right. for, through literature, and uh, so it was at Stanford where you uh, you found some uh, inspirational leaders, Absolutely. teachers who who you felt like yeah you could model yourself after them and right. and, and, and yeah, uh, and so you I, went I'm going to be on I'm going to be on Stanford campus just in a couple of days and doing a book signing and. Uh, I'll be, I know a couple of other professors I had and uh, former classmates will be there, uh, one, one of whom I think you'll know in terms of the politics of 
education in, in uh, California is Mike Kirst, who was on the state board for 30 or 40 years and was Jerry Brown's chief educational advisor for a lot of, lot of years. And so uh, Mike's going to come by and, uh, and we'll chat it up and, and, uh, but yeah, Mike was, I, I TA for him and was basically through him. I think I was the better fair to say I was trained as a policy analyst. And as you alluded to earlier, at some point, I just didn't see myself. I mean, I could have seen myself uh, in terms of my academic or intellectual uh, abilities going into a policy world, but like Mike did. But the draw to get back into the so-called real world, where I became a principal in Redwood City and out of one program, I mean, that's that's where the rubber meets the road. When you're taught, it's one thing to have policy. The other is how to create schools on the ground with real-life teachers and real-life kids and parents and uh, much more complex, much more demanding and uh, sometimes really rewarding and sometimes not so rewarding. But nevertheless, that's the direction I took for quite a, quite, quite some time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you, uh, you spend a fair amount of the, of the end of the book on, on that question. Uh, career trajectory and some of the, the challenges and the victories and uh, and the schools were never had enough money. They were, <laughs> they were constantly running and sometimes you were getting fired or let go of yeah. because of for financial reasons or other, <laughs> other reasons, yeah. personality conflicts, whatever. Uh, so I think because uh, of, of time here, of the, I want us to get to uh your finding your parents and and what you discovered about them and you know there were a there were things that you discovered that oh that's why I'm this way or that right. way they right. were they were kind of like you right so tell oh, us about at age that. age 50 I, I after I began to tell that earlier about uh, tracking down my birth mother, and I was told before I got there, the letter I sent her actually was intercepted by two of my half-sisters and told me that she had just been released from a halfway house in a major city back east, and uh, uh, maybe it wasn't right for me to come see her. And I said, I'm coming one way or the other, even if I just have to stand on the other side of the street and see what she looks like. So when I, I, I did come, and uh, uh, the first thing she said to me when she opened the door with my one of my half-sisters she peeked, at, peeked through the crack and said, who the hell gave you the right to, I didn't give you my address, what are you doing here? And she knew I was coming, but she said that anyway, which was a little bit of a, a moment of taking yeah, a deep real shock, and yeah. Hang with it. But anyway, I'll, to make the long, it's the whole chapter called Mother and Child Reunion, but I come into her apartment and it's a pretty dreary place. It's clean, but it's dreary. But she uh, apologized for not having her books there. Now, this is a woman who had been, uh, wandering the streets, you know, kind of your shopping bag lady for some time and had for years had issues with drugs and alcohol. And then she mentioned that her books were in storage. And I just sort of said, well, how many do you have? And she said, oh, about 500 or so. And then a light bulb went off in my head, having just been recently minted from Stanford. And she was a reader. And then she actually, ironically, if you can see where my finger is in the photo, but I know your uh, listeners won't be able to see it, is a Kandinsky. She pointed at the wall, and I said, "Oh, you've got—I see you like the National Gallery." And she said, "Oh, yeah, that's Kandinsky." And then she launched into a, a description, an art history lesson about Kandinsky's life and what period of Kandinsky's work this was, and so forth and so on. So that was pretty amazing, and I'm, my jaws home. And then I told a joke about Ronald Reagan, who was running for president. She laughed so hard that in that moment, it's as though just the, the world split open. It was just as though I could see her, I could hear her. Uh, my laugh and hers, I could, as little I could just jump and read her mind. It felt it was mutual. It was like a Spock mind melt. So suddenly all of that opened, all of the time. And I realized here we are 40 years later, and we really do have a reunion. And a day or two later when I left, uh, when we held each other uh, in our arms, I, I think I described it as though we had the guardian angel, our guardian angels, uh, you know, uh, surrounding us in those last tender moments before I had to leave to come back to the Bay Area. But but that that was that was what I came for. I came to know that she remembered me on my birthday, and of course it was a dumb question because of course she teared up and said, "Of course I do. I remember all the time." And my other half sisters, uh, her daughters with another man, said, "We always knew you were out there. We just wondered when you'd come back." Now wow. contrast that contrast that until two years ago when I got twenty three andme notification from a so called first cousin 
who turned out to be the son of one of my half sisters. And within a half an hour, bing, bang, bong, suddenly I realized the information I had about my birth father corresponded exactly. So they knew I was really, he really was my birth father. Uh, I, they were shocked. I was shocked. Um, and uh, we've, we've begun to develop a relationship over this last year or so. But but he had been deceased for some time. But uh, when they sent me his pictures, uh, when, when uh, roughly the time of the picture I had my birth mother, I realized, well, I look like him too. I mean, I'm a dead ringer for him. Uh, so uh, ironically, the, uh, one of my half-sisters not too long ago after reading the book said, well, it's really clear you didn't get your brains from, from our dad. You've got to prove your birth mother. On the other hand, he was he was a, a four sport letterman at a at a major university in the Midwest, and I have at that time before my leg got hurt, I had a fair amount of athletic ability. So you kind of you start to see how we are in part, but not entirely, some you know combination of our DNA. But uh, they each had they, they each had difficult lives after I was born. Although we had four daughters and and uh, two before I was born, and then two, I think two after, um, particularly my birth mother. This was a a tortured woman. And I think that sacrifice uh, that she made uh, to give me to a better family, as much as I, as much as I prospered and would never replace the family I have, there's always that kind of winsomeness, like, uh, am I just romanticizing her? And of course, I don't think I was, but that's where the meaning of souls on that level does not discount the fact that I would have had a miserable life with her otherwise. So that's sort of those realizations you get along the way and kind of this a, very, you know, a lot of these conundrums that kind of you face in terms of parentage, which is, I think, is a good reminder to others who go through the search process. As I say in the book, you know, be careful for what you look for. You you may not, you may be looking for Elizabeth Taylor, but you're not going to find her. It's going to yeah. be somebody or some other thing. So, but the, yeah. you have to live, you have to live that to, to really appreciate it. Right. How old was <laughs> she when she had you? Was she 19? Oh, she was, <clears throat> I guess they're roughly around 20. Yeah, so she she was quite young, and uh, had no way of of supporting you. It, I got the impression that it wasn't easy for her to give you up, and that she felt regret about that her I whole so. life. Yes, I do. Yeah, the place that you mentioned before, the Willows Maternity Sanitary in Kansas City, that was the hub of adoption world in the United States at that time, and the Willows w- was uh, considered the preeminent. Uh, uh, adoption or home for unwed mothers, and uh, uh, it's no, it doesn't hasn't physically existed since the late sixties. But it was it was a big operation for a long time. They ever got advertised all over the United States, and people brought their their young daughters uh, from all the coast to, to come there. Ironically, my seventy fifth birthday is coming up on February tenth, and uh, I'm going with a, a fellow a writer uh, from Kansas. Uh, we are co presenting at the. Uh, at the uh, Kansas City uh, Library on the day of my 75th birthday, which is only about a mile or so from the original site. So it's it's strictly nostalgia on my part, but sim- symbolically it just seems right. It seems like this is one way to do honor to, not only to to her, but all the other uh, mothers who have given up such a great sacrifice to have their children have a better yeah. life. I, I know the audience will have quite a few people from that the Kansas City adoption community there. So that that's enormously pleasing me to be have just that one little symbolic uh, nod toward all that has transpired all uh, way back. Yeah. Yeah. Now the other thread that we need to pick up here is, uh, and I I knew that you had gone to Pacifica and I kept waiting for, well, when is he going to Pacifica? And that also (laughs) was way towards the end of the book. And, uh, and, uh, uh, that's so. That's where you, you know, got qualifications to uh, advertise yourself as a Jungian therapist, um, and uh, but the th- that thread was there from early on. That you, even when you were in high school, you had discovered uh, Freud and some of the yep. other earlier psychoanalytic writers, and yes. you were you were pulled in that direction, but. Uh, the environment wasn't uh, wasn't supporting it. Yeah. yeah, that's one of those questions I don't have an answer for. I keep thinking, well, what if I would have gone into psychotherapy at a, at a young age instead of going, you know, going spending forty years in public education? But I, I think back and thought, well, what would I have been as thir- a thirty year old therapist? I know there's plenty out there, and there's nothing. You have to be one at some point, I guess. But for me, it wasn't until 
my late 60s, I became a therapist. And then I've already lived a pretty full life. Yeah. I mean, I'm a very different kind of human being. And so I think, as you, as you know, and appreciate it, I'm lecturing the choir saying this to you, that, you know, we in, in the process of our training, we have to cook ourselves. We have to go to places or have been the places where many of our clients or most of them have been to be a, any kind of guide or, or uh, help in any kind. So I, I think I bring in not only the uh, that early influence of psychotherapy, but it's interesting the ways in which my influence, say, of modern poetry, as an example, or uh, theology and different spiritual leaders, uh, including Zen, work their way into my practice that would never have been there before. So maybe, maybe another way of putting it is maybe I, I escape the uh, the uh, the clutches of orthodoxy that I might have experienced early on in order to. Uh, enjoy what I'm enjoying today. Now, that's not to say, because you have plenty of great people who, well, I mentioned to you privately about Tom Elzer. Uh, Tom uh, had, was in, in law and had a very different life before he decided to go to Zurich and become a, an analyst. And we we had, we were sort of similar ages, but uh, uh, at the time we had a similar kind of story about breaking from one career to go into the other where our, our souls demanded that we be. And it just sometimes it takes some of us long, a longer journey to get there. Yeah, and uh, you got uh, deeply into uh, into uh, Buddhism uh, progressively, uh, uh, slowly at first, but then more and more, and uh, and you even share with us that you got to meet the Dalai Lama and mm-hmm. and Sharon Stone, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> who who was also a, a follower of Buddhism and. Uh, so it's really quite a life, and I, I don't think there could have been. You can speculate, oh, what if I had discovered all of this earlier? But that's that's moot. This is what had to be. Absolutely, that's, and, that's the destiny part. That's the destiny part. And by the way, we've left out the synchronicity part. Uh, you uh, tell us about your discovery of synchronicity. Well, Right. Well, uh, uh, some buddies and I who were living out in western Colorado uh, had to go to Boulder to get supplies for the rest of the winter. I believe my time of the year is correct. And uh, we booked up a hitchhiker, and we he spent the night with us. And, uh, you know, we, we did all the things one did back then in terms of what we smoked and drank and so forth. had a great time. And the, the next day as we, we headed out, uh, he was so grateful. And he went on to Grand Junction, Bozo, New Colorado, was out west, and we circled back to go to Boulder. He, before he left, he gave me this pouch, of, a suede leather pouch that had, uh, he said, these are yarrow sticks. Do you know what they are? And I said, not really. He said, well, they're for the I Ching. Have you heard of that? And I said, I've heard of it, but not very well. So he directed me to go to the Boulder bookstore and buy Wilhelm's book on, on the I Ching or Book of Changes. And uh, I did. And, uh, and I went back to the home, ironically, the home of the former home of Robert Oppenheimer, where we were staying with some friends. So I, I did the first uh, uh, layout of the, of the sticks, and as I was, it was 50, the cauldron. And it seemed to relate to this good, not only to this great time I had with my friends the night before, but my own decision or ultimate decision to come back to Seattle and go to and pursue uh, education. But I was basically pretty lost at the time. Well, what really struck me was that uh, because I, always, I was familiar with Jung, I, as you mentioned, I read him when I was earlier. He was in my one of my senior theses in psychology at uh, at uh, Wisconsin, though, as I read the introduction by Carl Jung, as he describing his first time with with the sticks and with the I Ching, he also got the cauldron number fifty. And that that set a shiver up my spine. That was like yeah. wow. So, and I quote in the book his, his very words out of that uh, out of that introduction, and uh, which was on one hand a formal description of, as he described what synchronicity is, but the, living it. Uh, was entirely, uh, you know, was exponentially more powerful. And so I mentioned the book, people use synchronicity pretty glibly in their own way. And, and we sometimes, I think, lose sight of, maybe we get the, the academic uh, uh, descriptor of that gets in the way of actually understanding this, non, uh, this uh, non-rational uh, way of seeing the world differently. And the Ching is just one of those powerful ways we learn to do that. But that was... That was so instructive, and as you, we don't have time to get into this, but the the Oppenheimer piece goes back to the atomic bomb, goes back to the artifacts in my household that Dad brought back from Hiroshima, and goes forward in time to building his helping build a school here on Bainbridge Island. 
named after a Japanese-American family. So I have that kind of little tiny but important thread through my book about this connection to the horrors of the, of the bomb. And somehow, I'd like to think making good a little uh, gesture toward reconciliation and, and unification, which I think has happened here through the Sanoju Sakai Intermediate School here. So, uh, but yeah, those, those things, those amazing ways in which that matrix of what the web we, we leave, we, uh, we weave in our lives are sometimes astonishingly interwoven in ways that we could never have predicted or, um, and yet if we examine them, they're there. I think that's the signs are there. Yeah. Well, I've, I feel like my life has been uh, very much ruled in many ways by synchronicity, and uh, and that's the you know it's sometimes my rational side t- wants to take over, and uh, and I look at the synchronicity as a little wake up call, a little little yeah. reminder, hey, this is not the whole story, you know. Right. And, and, you know, uh, some of the parallels I mentioned briefly, but that's the purpose of the book was not to get into it, but uh, the interweaving of both when Hillman uh, evolved uh, archetypal astrology uh, in the handoff from Jung, for example, in, in the Jung Institute. Uh, also, the it was already present in some, sometimes ancient, quite ancient writings, but this notion of archetypal astrology and the idea, this is, of course, Richard Tarnas in, in Cosmos and Nike does a brilliant job of discussing this, uh, the ways in which those alignments, well, they're not causal, but, but particularly with the outer planets, have a defining impact on, on our lives and societies and global life, historical events, well-known people. They don't cause them, but, but somehow there's a peculiar and over repeated patterns of how those archetypal alignments of the, of the planets have some bearing and influence. Uh, Tom Moore's book on uh, the planets within about Ficino's work as a Renaissance uh, poet and, and priest are the precursors to all that, where we begin to see those other kinds of ways of understanding what happened, these uh, influences in our lives that are don't cause things to happen, but nevertheless, they're quite present. So that's part of that evokes, again, that kind of mystery. Of how does all that happen? Yeah. Even when we. I had people three years ago, they didn't tell me I was going to be with Dr. Dave on your, on Trink Rap Radio. That would have been a, step, a bridge too far. But they did say, this period of your life, this is three years ago, you'll be doing podcasts, writing. And I had, really? Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. How's that going to happen? Well, here we are. So here we are. Others, others, others saw it coming. And I was happy it did. It, it happened this way. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And so this, I did. Um... I did want to get one other thing in here. You quoted, uh, you quoted the British pediatrician Donald Winnicott as talking about um, the deep, nameless qualities of suffering in right. uh, childhood, yeah, childhood trauma. Any, yeah. any, you you use the term primitive agonies, right? Well, he used that term, and, and I became, I, all I've read his work, uh, Mark Epstein, who's a Buddhist psychiatrist, I don't know if he's been on your show or not, from New York, mentions it, that in, the, the notion of Winnicott and primitive agonies. And I would relate it to in this way, a, a primitive agony in my mind, again, Winnicott's the expert, not me, or Donald Colshed, not me. But there's something so profoundly deep, some other something so elemental, primitive, within our very nature, with the darker deeper parts of our soul, that when we have traumas of, of profound uh, abuse, profound abandonment, uh, profound being being cast to, you know, being rejected or being finding ourselves on our own, as many immigrants do, as other kids who are abandoned, uh, that, that taps something that's so deep that we can't, without knowing the term or what it actually means, it's just sort of, it's a vague, it's a vaguely uh, felt, vaguely but powerfully felt uh, psycho, psychic uh, dynamic within ourselves, within our, within the psyche that uh, that are are uh, what constantly there, and and it's not that we live our have to live lives as victims. And it's not like we're being overwhelmed every day, but when we get tapped in that particular way at the hands of trauma, it that's that that's it has that lasting, uh, almost like he's a primitive or a primordial kind of element of fear or sadness or rejection or abandonment, all those, any and all of those, 
that's the kind of that's the kind of uh, stuff we in psychotherapy deal with. Uh, it's the kind of stuff we are trained, I think, uh, into uh, be, begin to understand intuitively more so or on a feeling level than we can rationally. But sure as sure as could be, I'm sure any therapist would, would, who's listening would or analyst would would say they've found the same in, in difficult cases where those that that imprint is there. And uh, if primitive agonies is one of the ways of expressing that, uh, it, as a call should would explain, that also accounts for why the splintering, why this certain parts of ourselves in childhood get splintered and stay in a sense of call should be called a suspended state of animation within within, our, within the psyche until we have the means through therapy or sometimes other other means to begin to release that. I, I mentioned that with our son who we adopted, and I saw. He was four years old at the time we adopted, and he had gone through a tremendous amount of trauma, of neglect, and some kinds of abuse. I could see that in him, even though I hadn't had training as a therapist. I could see, I liken it to be being like a miner trapped in a mine. How are we going to get that? How are we going to get that little child out? How do we get that wounded part out? Because there's a lot of defense mechanisms that want to keep those in place, and so that's the that's the challenge of of a therapist. I think is to help reduce those barriers, help lessen the degree to which uh, uh, either either aggression on one side or depression on the other side. How we can begin to those are those are the hallmarks of, of the two sides of the coin of dissociation. How can we begin to lessen those so we can allow that split to find a, a way to rejoin or to heal or to become better integrated? Which does not mean uh, eliminating memory of what happened, but it does mean uh, not letting that fester alone and deeply within the psyche that is 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 underlying so much of the malady we experience in our adult lives. I'm so glad that you mentioned the adoption of your son. Uh, that's uh, that's a major thing that we didn't yep. get around to discussing here, but you were not looking to adopt. Uh, mm. <laughs> it was like, in a way, the furthest thing from your mind. And it, right. circumstances kind of conspired that... Uh, both you and your wife ended up feeling led to right. adopt this this young yeah. kid who is now in college, I guess. No, no, he's down. No, he's thirty four years old. He lives in North Hollywood, and he's in he's a video producer and editor. So, <laughs> no, he yeah, he was an actor from the get go. Went to Cal Arts, and uh, no, that's a clear case of love at first sight. It was just we saw him and all those other things. We still didn't want to have any kids except for him. We were so pulled in as we are today. It's just as strong today as it was back then. Just how much we loved it, how much we just instantaneous. We just, it, this was somebody we wanted to raise and have be a part of our lives for as long as we're alive. And that, that for sure is uh, alive and true. And this was another major synchronicity, I think, uh, yeah. the, way that, the way that that came together. Yes, it so, was. Dr. Stephen Rowley, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. Thanks for having me. It's been a, just a delight, as I knew it would be, Dr. Dave. Thank you. Is the universe trying to tell me something about my soul and religion? Consider that two episodes ago, my interview was with family therapist Mark Karras on religious trauma. Then last week, my interview was with Dr. Royce Fitz on the geography of the soul. Today's interview with Jungian therapist Steve Rowley on his memoir of adoption and destiny also involved a lot of discussion about the soul and synchronicity. This meaningful triplet of interviews was not really planned as a set, but somehow synchronicity seems to show up in what strikes me as a meaningful pattern. Now is the time for me to reflect on my experience of today's guest, Dr. Stephen Rowley. He beat me to the punch, imagining that others might ask him to comment on his experience of being interviewed on Shrink Wrap Radio. He said he would tell them it felt like a combination of being interviewed by Charlie Rose, Meet the Press, and The Tonight Show. He put me in good company with that remark. It was a pretty compliment. I hope I can do as well in turn. 
The first thing I would note is that Steve is an excellent writer. Indeed, we learned that he showed that promise as early as high school and that he was blessed to have at least one very demanding teacher there who would assign essays for every class and that his work would come back with comments in red all over the place. He realized he couldn't just coast through on his natural ability. So he learned to tighten things up. He spent some years at the University of Washington as an English lit major, and over the course of his career, took writing workshops where participants critiqued one another's work. His doctoral program at Stanford involved apprenticing himself to professors whose scholarship and communication skills modeled the excellence to which he aspired. So all of this is to say, I recommend his book, The Lost Coin, A Memoir of Adoption and Destiny to You. I found it to be a real page-turner, as absorbing as a novel. Steve and I had great rapport. We have a lot in common. We are roughly the same age, which means we went through the same major cultural events, such as the 60s campus protests during the Vietnam era, the nuclear threat during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and more. Andy let me know He's a longtime fan of Shrink Wrap Radio, and we've both been influenced by depth psychology, Jungian thought, and Buddhism. We've both been shaped by the quest for a birth parent and remarkable synchronicities along the way. Steve was placed in an orphanage when he was quite young. His adoptive parents were well off and did everything they could to reassure him that He was loved and, in fact, specially chosen. He was lucky to have grown up in comfortable circumstances, yet he was always aware of being different and haunted by the fear that his birth parents had given him up for adoption because he was defective in some way. He came to recognize that these fears were primitive agonies as coined by British pediatrician and psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott to describe the deep and nameless qualities of suffering that result from early childhood trauma. Despite this inner wound, he went on to have a remarkably accomplished and adventurous life with all the ups and downs of a rich fate. And yes, in the end, his persistence and synchronicities led him to discover his birth parents and half-siblings. The writing of this well-told tale was therapeutic for Steve and holds similar promise for all of us other traumatized children. Hello, Dr. Dave. This is Cindy Gozanski from Portland, Maine. I am a master's level psychotherapist and I have chosen to support Shrink Wrap Radio financially because of the immense benefit that I get from your podcast. I am in private practice and an adjunct instructor for our graduate counseling program at University of Southern Maine and find that your shrink wrap radio guests and information is so helpful to me in both of these fields. Often, after I hear one of your guests, I purchase the book or go to their website and I'm able to really incorporate more of the amazing information, techniques, tips and other things that are so useful that you provide. Again, I am so grateful for the wonderful features that Shrink Wrap Radio provides to all of the listeners and especially the professional listeners like myself in the area. And I have shared Shrink Wrap Radio and will continue to do so with um, many of my students and colleagues. Once again, thank you so much, Dr. Dave, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Cindy, up there in Maine. I'm so glad to hear how helpful and inspiring the show has been for you and your work there. And thanks for encouraging others to follow your fine example. Yes, once again, it's time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to listener and Jungian therapist Stephen Rowley, Ph.D., discussing his new book, The Lost Coin, A Memoir of Adoption, 
and destiny and for giving us such a rich overview of it. Next week, our guest will be UK Professor Matthew Smith on the mental health crisis in the United States. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.